All right, we are wrapping up Job 42. We took a slight detour because we were trying to figure out why these speeches worked. Why God's explanation of the behemoth and the Leviathan turned Job's heart more fully toward God. And we went to the book of James because when James commends, well, when James speaks to the situation, he commends both parties, God and Job. He commended Job for his perseverance. And so last week we talked about perseverance in warfare and perseverance in waiting. But God also, uh, James also commends God, which isn't strange or unusual, except that the specific things he commends about God with respect to Job's story are what? James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Probably not the top two attributes that we would commend with regards to the sto- God's act in the story of Job. And yet here we are. Um, and so this morning we're going to start and we're going to talk about that. Now, what does James mean when he says the Lord is compassionate? Well, the key is in the beginning of the verse and in the, the, in the rest of the story of Job, because he says this because of what he calls the purpose of the Lord. What makes God compassionate and merciful in James' sight with respect to Job, is that complex enough? <laughs> is not the how God did it. It's the what God was doing. It's God's purpose. It's the end or the goal for which God was working in Job's life. And we can see why this would be compassionate and merciful. We can see why this would be effective and valuable, even in Job's own words, in his confession. Stephen, can you read in 42? Will you read Job's speech 1 through 6? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust of ashes. We've talked the last few weeks about all the components that are necessary to bring about, we've sort of said um, repentance or right relationship with God, but repentance and right relationship with God are necessary to receive blessing, eternal life with God, the components that are necessary to receive that. And one of the ones that we've talked about a fair amount, I think Kathy brought it up a couple weeks ago, is humility. It has to start somewhere in that chain with humility. Without humility, there can be no eternal blessing and life with God. Can't happen. Because if you uh, still think that you are God, or you are better than God, or you are a peer with God, or you are above God, or you stand in judgment with God, over God, you cannot enjoy life and fellowship with God. 
a really difficult phrase to think about in this context is that if that's true, then God has to love Job to humble him this much. Does God love you enough to humble you? Oof. <laughs> no, uh, scripture, <laughs> scripture encourages us to humble ourselves, lest the Lord humble us. <laughs> How y'all doing at that? <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit uh, hit or miss, mostly miss. And yet the Lord in his lo- love for the purpose of you being able to enjoy everlasting life with him, he will humble us. And so that's what God does with Job. He loves him enough to humble him. And the result of that humility of Job is not self-loathing. It's not uh, despair. Remember back when Job had despair? He didn't have humility. He, he despaired his circumstances. He despaired his life because of his circumstances. He despaired because he thought that he was impossibly separated from God. That's what brought him despair. What you think would bring you despair is God putting you in your place. That he is God and you are not even close. And you think, yeah, that would make him feel really bad. No, that's not what made him feel really bad. The absence of that humility is when he felt really, really bad. What he feels here is repentance. Repentance toward God. He doesn't admit that his friends were right in their accusations. Why not? Why doesn't he admit? I mean, he's repenting. Why not just admit that they were right all along? Why doesn't he do that? They were calling out the wrong type of sin. Like, this wasn't this. Because they weren't right. (laughs) They weren't right. He doesn't lose factual integrity here. Repentance isn't this, uh, this indiscriminate unthoughtful heaping up of apologies that have no correspondence to reality. Seeing things wrongly where you're the bad guy is no more correct than seeing things wrongly where you're the good guy. What Job has in his humility is finally seeing things rightly. And so his repentance is before God. He has been presumptuous. He's over reached himself. Verse 3, he said things that he should not say. To be brought so low that you despise yourself because you are exalting in God is a good thing. It's not a good thing if your being brought low is in comparison to men, to other people. That's not what God asks of us. That's not a healthy thing. That's actually a destructive thing. That type of humility, the humiliation that we think of, of comparing ourselves to others and we don't measure up, that's not good for anybody. But to see yourself rightly in relationship to God, because God has shown you himself, 
That type of humility is a healthy thing because it's a true thing. It's a life-giving thing. And Ash argues well that it's a mark of the love of God that he brings Job low, for this is where a creature ought to be. Listen to this. He says, this is true for us as well. This is hard, hard to hear, but <laughs> we often pray for success, both for us and for others. We pray for good exam results, for good job offers, and yet so often Success leads to pride, and pride to self-confidence, and self-confidence to independence from God, and independence from God leads to hell. The most deeply compassionate and merciful thing that God can do is to humble us and bring us low so that we bow before him and lean on him and trust him. That's hard to hear. That's hard to hear that What God may have to do to love me best is to take away by his destructive force all of my self-reliance. It's easy to think when we have it all, when we have wealth or good relationships and health and reputation and we have all of these things, we look at that person and say, oh, that's a dangerous place to be because it's hard to, be, to have all that and to believe that you still need God. But I'll tell you, in my own life, and I suspect you've seen this in yours, God can take away almost all of that. Almost all of it. He can leave you with a stick and some bailing wire, and you will still think of yourself as MacGyver, that you can put this together, and you've got it. <laughs> and what is left for God to do in his love? But to take those away as well. If that's the condition of your heart, that I could do this without him. Either because you think you have to, because you don't deserve it, or because you're too prideful and you think that you can or you can do it better, or because you're hurt and you don't want to depend on him. There's all kinds of reasons that we get there. But if we get there where we're telling God, I can do this myself no matter how little I have, what else loving is for him to do but to cover our bodies with sores and to put us on a smoldering pile of ashes in lament. You say, well, that sounds insane. Does it? If that's the thing that will humble us and that humility is the only path to everlasting life with God, and that's why James calls it what he does. That's why he looks at this and says... um, that God is compa- the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If that's what it takes to save us, God will do it. Another way that God is compassionate and merciful is that he justifies us. Renee can or accepts us, justifies us. Renee, can you read 7 through 9? After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bowls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What does God say twice about Job here? That he has spoken rightly. What does God say twice here will happen to Job's prayer and sacrifice? It will be accepted. Job is acceptable before God. Job is right before God. These are justification words. Job is, he has gotten what he wanted. He is justified before God, not by Job's work and sacrifice and righteousness, but by God's grace and mercy. And the result of that is that Job is vindicated. God declares him to be the right, in the right. I mean, it's all over this text. What does God refer to Job as here? Twice. Everything happens twice in this text to emphasize it. My servant, my servant, who spoke rightly of me and will be accepted before me. And then, just in this lovely little sort of sticking the knife in and just the teeny tiny twist, what does he tell, what does he tell Job to do? He says, uh, Job, you're going to have to sacrifice for these chumps. Chumps, you need Job's sacrifice. Job will make a sacrifice for you. And I will accept it. Job will pray for you. I mean, that's, that is such a great God move of Job will pray for you. What was Job doing back in chapter 1 when we first met him? Interceding and praying for his children. What is Job doing here at the end of the book? Interceding and praying for his frenemies? (laughs) Job is righteous, justified, vindicated. Job is the one. You have to be... what, What happens if you sacrifice and you're not in right relationship to the Lord? He wants to, but he, word, but he definitely won't accept it. He will not accept the sacrifice from someone whose heart's not right with him. It's all over the, it starts in Genesis, but it's all over the prophets. The difference between acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices doesn't start with the mechanics. The mechanics matter because a heart that's right with God wants to be obedient to God. And a heart that's right with God says it matters how God wants to be worshiped. That's, I think, sometimes a false dichotomy people create. God doesn't care about the mechanics. He only cares about the heart. No, God spends thousands of words in the Bible talking about the mechanics. He cares deeply about them, but he says it's not enough to have the mechanics. If you get your heart right, you'll desire the mechanics, and you'll worship me the way I want to be worshipped, and that is acceptable. And he says that Job is the one here who's going to do it. Job is the one whose heart is right with God, and he will be accepted. It strikes me, uh, I've never noticed this before, but the, this is like, it seems like another difficult ask of Job. Like, it's like you've, you've, you've done all this to him, and at the very end, like, if I'm Job, I want these frenemies of mine to get their comeuppance, and now God's saying, now you're going to sacrifice and pray for them so I can forgive them. Like, does it? Do you think there's any of that in Job? Or like, is he like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine. I, I can't wait for them to be reconciled with God. I don't think there is any of that in Job. 
only because of where Job's heart has gotten to at this point. I think there definitely would have been some of that in Job a few chapters ago. But I think right now, all Job can see is that God, and notice, this is before anything is restored to Job. And in Job's mind and heart, God has given him more than he ever asked for. Because what Job wanted most was not his stuff. He wanted to be vindicated before God. He wanted to be acknowledged as right with God. He wanted to be acknowledged as a servant of God. He wanted the accusations of his frenemies to be dismissed as invalid, that Job is righteous and walking with God. And God has given that to him. And the the way that God has externally vindicated him is this prayer and sacrifice, is this ask. So I, I, I think that Job's mind and heart would be much more focused on God's abundant giving him more than he asked for than on the fact that the result of it is these chumps sin might be forgiven. So this is more where Job is actually like Christ than... <laughs> like <not>. me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. anything I'm going to do is pride. Yeah. Yeah. But God has humbled him. I mean, this is... What, what could we do if our hearts were truly humbled before the Lord. And I, I don't mean that like existentially, what you'll do one day in the new... No, no, I'm like, Job's a person, a human, flesh, bones, earth. This really happened. Absolutely a type of Christ. But a type of Christ who didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in him every day. We do. And, and, and I do think sometimes we should look at something like this and I think sometimes, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I have seen people do things this righteous, without mixed motives, with pure humility before the Lord. I have seen people do things like this. And the first place my mind goes is skepticism. <laughs> oh, God, they must be, they just think they're so good. No, they don't. No, they're actually humbled before the Lord. And I am threatened and embarrassed by their godliness. Their actual godliness is an affront (laughs) to me. Because I'd rather say it's impossible than admit that's not what I'm doing or would have done. Yes, there's self-righteousness in the world. There's self-righteousness in the church. There's self-righteousness everywhere. There's self-righteousness in this room. There's self-righteousness behind this lectern. It doesn't have to be that way. If God gets a hold of our hearts like this and shows us himself, the result being humility, we can be righteous before the Lord. It's, it's the really delicate balance of talking about sanctification and mortification because we, we, we go very quickly to the theological truth, and it is true and it is important. We will not be perfect in this life. That is absolutely true and important. Is it ever an excuse? Is the fact that we won't obtain perfection ever something we use as an excuse for holiness? But is it? Nobody's perfect. Right? Don't we say that? It says throughout that we should be trying for that. Uh, We shouldn't be trying like, oh, well, I'm not perfect, so what the heck? (laughs) I can just go do this. My heart has said that. I won't ask you to raise your hands if your heart has said it. 
but it has. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great challenge. Yeah. It's such a great challenge. Sometimes after, you know, like you realize that you, and you kind of go, I mean, even in repentance, I think sometimes it's like, well, I know I'm not perfect. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. We talked about this a little bit in Equip yesterday, just the idea of uh, there will be temptations all around us that have nothing to do with our actions. We will be tempted to sin by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Aren't there also a fair number of temptations in your life that like, you choose to allow to be there? That like, you don't make the effort to get rid of at the temptation level before the sin level? There are just things that we could be doing by the power of the Holy Spirit if we really saw God for where, who he is, if we really got on, on fire for the righteousness of God. There, there's so much good could, could be done. God is doing good in us. God is making us righteous and more and more like Christ. We don't have to take a fully passive role in that. Right? We, can, we, can be, we can be active participants in working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what's our problem? Like I imagine what in is heaven, <laughs> like meeting Job and like, how did you do it, Job? Like, that was amazing. And, and he's, like, he's going to look at us with confusion. You had the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Y'all were. Yep. So what's our problem? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have seen God as clearly as Job does in this book. I don't know that we're looking for him that violently. He says, knock and it will be opened. Seek and you will find. I don't know that we're beating down the doors of heaven asking for more and more and more of God. Some of you may be, and God may be unfolding that in his time and plan and purpose. I can only speak to myself. Is that because... You guys are really getting into the why this morning. <laughs> it, it seems to me, Job looked for God. And what he got was not what he was looking for at all, right? And that's, that's us. I think that's what we're afraid of. When we're, when we're going to find the God we don't want, mm-hmm. therefore it's easier not to find that God and just continue to believe the God that we have mm-hmm. imagined him to be. Mm-hmm. And that's way more comfortable. God is terrifying. God as he is, is terrifying. He is not safe, but he is good. And that's not enough for us. We want safe, manageable, controllable. We want God confined within some bounds of, well, I know you can do some really tough things, God, but you can't do this. God's like, watch. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the idea of real encounters with the real God is subconsciously terrifying to us. I think we have to, my culture, love to us is all feel good. Mm. Which, God's love is not all feel good, obviously. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if James calls this compassionate and merciful, this is what mercy looks like to God? Taking away absolutely everything the man has and knows and loves in order that the man would be humbled and see God as God, that's compassionate. Yowza. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, I think that's a really good combination of points. Why don't we? And then the deeper why is because we're afraid of what we would find if we did. 
Why don't we seek out God? We're afraid of what we would find if we did. And that's not right. Just, for, just to make sure we're all clear on this. It's also not safe, apparently. It is not safe. It is not safe. It's not a safe choice. But it's good. No, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm saying the other way. It's not safe because we now have a par excellence example of... This is what could happen when you do it. This looks like if you continue yeah. this road. When you decide to go deeper and deeper and deeper and in and in and in and in and in with God... And God decides in his love that he is going to let you in even deeper to himself and give you a vision of him that you have not yet had. He could nearly kill you to do it. And that's good. Whew. Yeah. And rem- okay. Is that what C.S. Lewis calls God the great iconoclast? Whatever preconceived notion you have of God, no matter how good, rich, full you believe it to be, he may shatter the entire thing to rebuild for you a vision that is more true. (laughs) We need God to, to, to... God vindicates Job, and just to make sure we're clear, it shouldn't go without saying if you are in Christ God will vindicate you God will vindicate you we're going to read a dramatic visualization of that promise in Isaiah today terrifying visualization gross visualization God will vindicate those who are in Christ and then lastly God will bless Job. Daphne, can you read 10 through 17? The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hephach. And in all of the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Remembering from last week or the week before, the end comes at the end. God blesses Job in this life at the end of his story to remind us that the end comes at the end. The end that this is talking about is not in this life. The the restored blessing and vindication and justification that God promises to his people is not in this life. It is at the end of days. It is in that day, the great day. But in Job's story, because God is using Job's life as this picture for us of the covenant and of life with him, Job is 
blessed. And something I hope you see from the blessing of Job, and you'll see it again in the Isaiah text this morning, is the specificity, the personalization of the blessing. I think there are some of us who think about the hurts we have in our lives, the wrongs that we have endured, the suffering that has taken place. And we imagine that God will make things right in such a way that we won't care about those things anymore in comparison to the blessing or that we won't think about those things anymore because of everlasting life with God. But that's not what God says. That's not what scripture says again and again and again. Your restoration is personalized. It is tailored to you. The inhabitants of Jerusalem who were taken into exile are told that they will plant and reap from their own fields. They will have the land restored to them. Their temple that was uh, uh, decimated will be rebuilt and they will be able to worship acceptably in the presence of God again. And Job gets a very specific particular set of blessing and restoration that is not generalized, it is personalized. The wounds that you have, the hurts you've experienced, the wrongs that have been done, they will not be simply wiped away and you'll have too many good things to remember them. You will see them made right. You will see them made right. So what does Job get? Uh, Go back to chapter 2, verse 11 real quick. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Themanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And how did that go? No bueno. No bueno. And then look at verse 11 in chapter 42. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Job could reflect back on this wrong that had taken place in his life, on this deep wound and hurt, where instead of the comforters that Job craved, God sent him these frenemies who rained accusations down on his head. And in this restoration, God sends him friends, brothers and sisters, to break bread with him and to show sympathy and to be compassionate. His isolation is replaced, this is Ash, his isolation is replaced by a joyful return to life among others. Joy comes back into his life. What God had taken away, joy, God restored, real joy. Now it's really important that you get the order right, of course. God restored Job to relationship with him before he blessed him. Job said, verse 5, my eyes see you before he received these blessings. And that is, that, that's the whole ballgame. Because the reverse is Satan's accusation. Satan said, he worships because you have blessed. And what we see in Job is no, he worships because God is God. And in the end... He will be blessed. 
when he worships, when he makes the prayer and the sacrifice for his friends, he has no certainty that any of this will be restored. He lives by faith and not by sight. The the order is really critical. Now, also critical is that the blessing is not a reward for worship. This is Job at his best. But Job still does not deserve the blessing of God. He still doesn't deserve it. He's still not the perfect one. (laughs) And so what God gives is undeserved blessing. What God gives is grace. Otherwise, if you think otherwise, then God is in debt to Job when Job worships. And God has to give blessing. And God is no one's debtor. Go back to the beginning of this book. (laughs) If, If our minds go there, but God, I don't understand. I'm not like Job. I'm not harboring self-righteousness. I'm worshiping you. I'm following you. I'm doing everything I can. And you're still bringing all this junk in my life. Where is my blessing? You, you, like you see the sort of self-referentially defeating part of that? It just doesn't work. God pours out undeserved blessing. He is in debt to no one. And that's why the only blessing we can be sure of Asterisks, I'll come back to that, is that which happens at the end. What does James say? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Close. The coming of the Lord. Be patient until when? Until the last day. Be patient until there's no more need for patience. Be patient that long. <clears throat> Not be patient just to get through this trial. Be patient until there are no more trials. The end comes at the end. The purpose of the Lord to show mercy and compassion will be seen finally only when the Lord Jesus returns in glory. The end comes at the end. The normal Christian life is warfare and waiting and being loved and humbled by God and being justified by God all in the here and now. But it is the expectation of blessing at the end. Often we do get blessed now. God graciously pours out all manner of blessings here and now. But the blessings we get now are just a tiny foretaste of the blessings to be poured out on the end. We have to be real careful with the end of Job because we can get any of those last three points mixed up and it ruins the whole thing. It ruins the whole thing. We can fall into the camp of uh, being fair weather fans where we're good with God when it feels like God is good with us. God is being good to me. I will be good to God. That's our deal. That's a problem. Uh, We can get into a mess if we think that God is obligated to bless us in response to what we do. I have kept all the commandments since I was a child. (laughs) Doesn't somebody say that in the New Testament? It's one of my favorite interactions. And and Jesus, really, tell me about those. Yeah, yeah, I rattle off a couple. I've kept them all. I'm pretty good at this. Jesus says, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Hey, hey, do me a favor. Sell everything that you have and give it away. <laughs> this is my favorite. He went away sad. Why? 
Oh, I mean, I already followed the list you gave me, and now you're making a new list? You're changing the deal. She says, oh, that was never the deal. It was never the deal. You didn't even keep that deal, but it was never the deal. I'm the deal. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we can really mess that up if we think, look, God, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I am far from perfect. But, and then pretty much anything you say after that, which just for the record, isn't going to be good. But, I pray every day. I tithe on my income. I go to a great church. I try to love the people around me. I read the Bible some. I pray. I mean, it seems like if you're going to let bad things happen in some people's lives, it shouldn't be mine. Right? I mean, we laugh, but um, come on, you've had that. You've had that. You've had something bad come into your life, and you have thought, this seems like something someone else should deserve. <laughs> God, if you need a list of targets, I can provide it for you. And so that's the other way we mess it up. But then the third way we mess it up is we put a time limit on our perseverance and our patience. And we start keeping a list of all the things we've endured, of all the things we've suffered. And we do tend to compare that with other people's lists because some people have much longer lists. I don't have the longest list in this room, not even close to it. And so you can compare yourself to other people and you can say, I already have this long list of suffering. Why do I need more of this? And the Lord says, because you need perfect steadfastness. You need perfect patience. You need to understand that there is a point at which you can no longer persevere. And that is when I and my perseverance will see you through. And actually, that's been the case the whole time. But sometimes God has to bring us really, 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 really low before we see that and admit that. That's the whole you know, nonsense with the, I'm sorry if that's offensive to anybody. The footsteps in the sand poster thing, right? That's this idea that there are two sets of footprints, and then every now and then there's only one set. And the poster says, and I ask God, God, where were you? And God says, those were the hard times when I picked you up and carried you. Okay, if we're going to try to make a theological point out of this, there should only be one set of footsteps the whole time. God is not just carrying you when life is hard. God is carrying you when you think life is easy. God is carrying you in forbearance. When you are, when you are uh, mindlessly walking through life, thinking that you have little need for God because you've got this taken care of. He's still carrying you. And whatever he has to do to teach us that the steadfastness has to last all the way to the end, that the perseverance, the patience, have to last until the end because they come from him and not from us. And yes, he's very gracious. He does pour out blessings, blessings that are a foretaste. If he poured out too many blessings, we would we would consider them good enough. If he poured out too many blessings and made this life too good, there would be no come Lord Jesus in us. And so it's this delicate balance that we're not capable of achieving, but God in his goodness is. And that's why even in his goodness, he has to send out calamity. Because we need that calamity. We need it to be humbled 
We need it to rely on him. We need it to not get too comfortable here. We need it to, to understand our creaturely, creatureliness and his uh, godness, the godness of God. So that's what Job gives us here in the end. Um, and don't forget in this, oh yeah, let me actually, let me read a couple things from Derek Thomas because I've been leaning heavily on Christopher Ashe in this part. There's some really good Derek Thomas quotes in here. Um, a note about Job's wisdom. God makes a big point out of the fact that Job and not Job's friends have spoken of me what is right. The counselors have been convinced of their own righteousness, but their contribution has been folly. The contrast is between wisdom and foolishness. Job has been the wise one throughout. His friends have been fools. They learn to their amazement that God is angry with them. Don't you just love that like little scene where the friends, so self-righteous, so confident in their worldview, so sure that Job's got some learning to do from them, how shocked they must be in chapter 42 when God says, yeah, I'm going to need Job to pray and sacrifice on your behalf. I'm furious with you. Uh, furthermore, Job's counselors, who've been scornful of Job from the very beginning, now discover that the only means of delivery from God's anger is through Job's prayerful intervention on their behalf. What fools they have been. This is hard for me. If there is one piece of advice that the wisdom school of the Old Testament wished to convey more than any other, in regards to the use of words, the fewer, the better. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Yeah, I'll let that just do its own thing. So that kind of comes back to when you're comforting somebody, right? Probably, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to say, by the beginning, his friends just that one, and they didn't say yeah, anything. Yeah, no, right? the answer's not zero, <laughs> but the answer is less is more, yeah, right. down to a point. Um, and then the other thing that, that, Derek Thomas brings us back to is a reminder of the cosmic scale of this battle. The Job's suffering has been due to a struggle between good and evil on a cosmic scale. And Satan's aggrandizement, Satan's pretty powerful in this book, right? Satan has a lot that he can do, but that is now over. He has been defeated. God has triumphed. It is a vital element of our understanding of the nature of God's redemptive work that Jesus Christ came into the world to overthrow Satan's proud boasts. There are things in your life that you will see that represent the boasting of Satan. Those who do his work will boast in themselves and boast knowingly or unknowingly on his behalf. And those hurt, and those can cause a lot of damage in your life. But you need to know that those are vain and empty. Those are the, that's the wind. There is no victory there. Um, that takes faith and perseverance. Because here, it's pretty impactful. It seems pretty big. But ultimately, in the cosmic warfare, it, it is a vain blowing of the wind. It is... It is nothing. God will vindicate his people. He will vindicate those of us in Christ as he vindicated Job because ultimately he will vindicate himself. And if we are standing with him, we bask in the overflow of that vindication. Last little thing from uh, Derek Thomas, and then I'll take questions. 
As we have already seen, there had been a time when Job failed to imagine God ever being good to him again or any renewal of his own life. Everything that was dear to him had been taken away. There only remained the certainty of death. God's pruning shears had seemed devoid of mercy, and unlike the tree which had been cut down, there was no hope for him. But spring came again to Job's life. It was a spring of such beauty and fragrance that the bitterness of the past seemed almost forgotten. Hope and life and joy returned in abundance. In God's way of doing things, winter is followed by springtime. For some, it may be in just the very terms given to Job, but for others, the blessing will be even greater. It will not be a blessing of life in this world, but a fuller and better life in the world to come. Calvin had a theory about why the patriarchs were allowed to live as long as they did. It was because they lived so far away from the full revelation of Jesus Christ. They needed more time to confirm to them God's goodness. Um, his point being that we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. It should and does therefore take us less time to take hold of God's goodness than it did for those for whom Christ was only a promise and the Holy Spirit only an occasional blowing of the wind or fire or some other manifestation of God's presence. He mentioned Calvin. You know, John Calvin's family coat of arms had a motto. It was a hand holding a heart. And the motto, uh, of course in Latin, uh, My heart for thy cause I offer thee, Lord, promptly and sincerely. And I think that's a good motto for Job and where Job gets in the end. Where Job was all along. And God broke so that he could restore even greater. Life is lived best when offered humbly and submissively to God through whatever pains he is pleased to send our way. What a, what a brutally difficult prayer. Lord, make me humble and submissive to whatever pains you are pleased to send my way because all I want is more of you. I want a clearer understanding. I want to see more and to know more, to be closer, to, to be more pleasing in your sight, to be more like Christ, to have greater awareness of your loving kindness, whatever it takes. And the whatever it takes is dangerous. It is not safe. So looking back on trials in our lives and in, in my life, I can I can now like look at those trials and have the attitude that you just described of it was a good thing that the Lord brought me through that. In the midst of those trials, I've done some we've all done some nasty things. And I'm just trying to reconcile that. You know, like what if and this is pure pastoral conjecture. Yeah. But what if God decided that the way that he was going to make you more and more like Christ, the way that he was going to work toward perfecting us to the image of his son, was to get us to the point where we could do the thing we do after the trial in the trial. Yeah. God, I see that you had a wise purpose for this. I see that you were good. I see that you are God and I am not. 
I see that your covenant faithfulness includes and extends beyond the pain that you bring into my life. And, and again, pure conjecture. But what if God decided that what's best for you, not maybe not you personally, but Joe Smith, what this believer, what I'm going to do with him is send trial after trial after trial after trial because he gets there when the trial is over and I'm working on him to get there when the trial is happening. Yeah. Wouldn't that be love? <laughs> Anybody want that? <laughs> right? I don't want it either. But that, that's the way we have to think is there's always... We, we cannot, we, we can be sure because God has promised us that we will not be like Christ until the day of his coming. And so until that moment, there is always work God can be doing in us. The, the most righteous person you've ever known, the day before they died, God had more work to do in them. <laughs> wasn't very much, but it was some. He wasn't done. And we should never feel like we've arrived. I think that's the danger, is that when we go through a trial, we, don't, we do bad, we sin, we don't, we don't handle it perfectly, but, but we're not at our worst. And then when it's over, we have a good and godly reaction, and we think, all right, I've made it. Well, there's a little more we could do here. 